Welcome everybody to the Instructional Redesign Podcast. This is our second part on our Job Seeker series. Last episode, I talked about the Job Seeker's perspective, and today, Kara is going to walk through the point of view of a hiring manager. It's a process that she just went through in her new role as a learning and development manager. So, Kara, why don't you talk about your experience? Okay, so I will tell you that at least for me, I was probably as equally nervous as the job candidates because I know what it's like kind of being on the other side of the interview process. So what I thought I'd kind of demystify and talk about today with a caveat of your mileage may vary. It's going to look different at different organizations. And I did go further into depth on this. I did also have a TLDC episode about it, Confessions of a Hiring Manager. So we'll share the link to that as well. I think that Luis is working on putting that up on YouTube. But before I even talk about the interview, let's talk a little bit about how you get to the interview. So as you all can imagine and hopefully appreciate, when we have positions open, at least at my org and then I'm sure other orgs as well, we get a lot of interest and we get a lot of resumes. So for this position, I was really excited about it, obviously. Um, I'm still kind of new to the company and I'm looking to start building my team. And so I was really excited and I wanted to share it everywhere. So when the job posting went live, I shared it on my LinkedIn, my Twitter, and then my own personal Facebook. And let me just say, Joe, I was a little bit surprised by some of the stuff that happened uh, when I did that. So case in point, I got a lot of people sending me their resumes, asking me to apply to the job for them. I got some people who applied for the job and then said, hey, now that I applied for the job, can I schedule my interview now? But probably hands down, the most surprising thing that happened is I actually tweeted something along the lines of, you know, just because I'm connected with you on social media, it doesn't really entitle you to my time because I got inundated with just messages from people about, I want to talk to you about this job, blah, blah, blah. And it's not that I didn't want to talk to people, but it was just kind of the forcefulness. And and, and some people actually demanded my time. And so that's kind of where I drew, drew a line. So I tweeted about that. And it got picked up by a recruiter group on Facebook who basically roasted me and cut me down pretty hard. And so that was really, really eye-opening. Yeah, you know, it's it's tough right now for a lot of people. And the job market is is tight. And that means that people have to be doing some things to stand above the competition. But there's still a fine line between doing something that makes you stand out and behavior that kind of portrays yourself in a negative light. As a job seeker, you're not really in a position to demand anything and you come across to many as a very friendly person, but that doesn't give that person that perhaps is connected with you any more of a leg up than than anyone else. At the end of the day, it comes down to being qualified for the role. Right. Well, I I appreciate that. Like I, I try to be as helpful as I can, but even I was kind of surprised by some of the behavior. So I guess I'll start by saying, you know, be kind to the hiring manager. I mean, this should kind of go without saying, but I, I did get some kind of nasty grams about 
the whole thing. Like, why aren't you responding to me? I'm applying for your job, blah, blah, blah. And the reason that I didn't feel comfortable responding to all that is, you know, my organization has a process in place for a reason, right? So the main purpose of me sharing it on social media is it's just something I wanted people to be aware of and I wanted them to look at it, see if it would be a fit for them and then, then apply for it. So the process at my organization, and just so you know, your mileage may vary, it may be different at other organizations, just putting that out there is, you know, you apply for a position and then we actually have a recruiter on staff at our organization who goes through the amazing pile of resumes. And Joe, let me tell you, it is a pile because before this started, I was even thinking about, oh my gosh, I can't wait to go through the resumes and look at them. But then as the numbers kept growing and growing and growing and my day-to-day duties at work kept growing and growing and growing. I had the best intentions of going through. I just didn't have time. And I was even encouraged by my supervisor to basically rely on our recruiter to do to do that for us. So um, as you can imagine, the organization I work for, they're not all like L&D people. So before this process started, I did have a conversation with the the recruiter. She wanted to know more about like what I was looking for and who I was looking for. So we kind of had like this little mini calibration session so she could understand what I was looking for. And so she could be looking for people. So the first step was you had to pass through uh, the recruiter. I'm glad you walked through that and talked about the internal processes that go on behind the scenes after someone has applied for a job. It's something that I talked about in detail in the fourth and last part of my Job Seeker series on TLD Cast. I think I listed like 15 steps, and then I highlighted the three or four that are what is visible to a job seeker. And just to, to demonstrate all the things that are happening behind the scenes, after you apply for a job, after you go through the different interviews, um, there's a lot of stuff that happens. And I'm really glad that you highlighted the the importance of a recruiter and their role and why they're necessary to help screen candidates just from an efficiency standpoint. Would it be more effective if the hiring manager could see every resume to make sure that they're not filtering out any viable candidates? Absolutely. But from an efficiency standpoint, it's just not possible. And it's gotten to the point in today's world where the recruiters don't have enough time to look over things and they have to rely on automated systems, what's known as applicant tracking systems, ATS. They have to rely on these systems to filter out candidates that are deemed as not qualified. And then the recruiter has to look over the ones that are floating to the top as determined by some filtering criteria and some algorithms. And then those are the ones that go on to be screened by the recruiter. And then the ones that pass the screening go on to an in-person, quote unquote, because it could be virtual interview. And then, you know, that, that that's considered the second round. And then there could be a third round or, or possibly another one. So knowing all those things are happening behind the scenes and knowing where you're at in the process Um, can really help you as far as just getting your sense of timing and and when you can follow up and just for someone to apply and then be like, why aren't you responding to me? Just demonstrates a complete lack of awareness of how the process works. And, you know, if you're not an HR, an HR professional and you haven't been exposed to this, you might not know how it works. I will tell you one thing. I didn't even look at their resumes that they attached. If they sent me that message, I just deleted it. So if you're that person, sorry, I didn't look at your resume. And I actually had a a situation recently because 
my new team is growing. I'm not the hiring manager, but I, I wanted to see if I could find somebody myself on, on. So I just put something out on Twitter saying, hey, my team is growing. And if if you have a good portfolio and in, in this or that, uh, message me. I'm a little worried about what I would get back. And my my fears were confirmed. I kind of had similar things as you, people just coming out and saying, oh, I have 25 years of experience in this. And I look and it's really not related to what the job description says. And my favorite of all time, I just got a reply that just said yes. <laughs> and I don't know what that person thought I was supposed to do with that. Um, but needless to say, they did not get the job. Ah, poor yes person. They're probably still out there looking for for the job. So that's funny. But um, I just want to circle back real quick about a point that you made, and then I want to kind of continue the narrative or the process, so to speak. So you're absolutely right. The recruiting function is something that I definitely have a newfound respect for. And our recruiter is completely underwater with all the different things that she has on our plate. So we actually did as an organization, we are contracting with other recruiters recruiting firms as well. So um, they've also helped with the job search process. So so after you get through, the recruiter is interested in your resume. What happened then is basically that resume would then come to me and I would take a look at your resume and judge it harshly. Not really. Um, I just want to see like what people were working with. And then if I liked the resume, then she would go ahead and do a phone screen. And so that was kind of the process that we did there. So the resumes that I liked, then she would reach out and do the phone screen. And then she would let me know how that phone screen went. Um, if there were any kind of red flags or anything that she was concerned with. And then she actually set up the interview for us. So the way my org does it is we typically have panel interviews. Uh, the panel uh, consists of the hiring manager, who was me, and then also various stakeholders of the L&D function. So we had our communications manager on the panel, had um, two other managers of their particular business functions that we work very closely with as well on the panel. So um, that's kind of how it started. We did our interviews via Microsoft Teams because that's the platform that we currently use. And uh, the interview was also very interesting as well. We'll put it put it that way. A lot of a lot of interesting things going on. So speaking of the interview process, from a hiring manager's perspective, assuming that you know we, the the candidate has passed the phone screen interview with the recruiter and now they're having an interview with you, in addition to making sure that this person is qualified for the role, what are the kind of things that you're looking for in candidates? Great question. So for me, a couple of things. One, I don't want a clone of me. So I know my orientation, what I look for, my strengths and weaknesses. So I really look for people that have skill sets beyond mine. And I look for people with experience that is different than mine. So Case in point for this particular position, this is going to be a lot of development work, um, depending on, you know, the various projects that we have 
coming in and I'm definitely stronger in the ID side of the house, the curriculum development piece versus the development. I can do it, but it's definitely not my strong suit. I'm definitely not a Joe Suarez. We'll put it that way. So I wanted somebody that I felt could come in and kind of have that strength out of the gate. So I really wanted to see somebody who complemented the skill set of, of me. Cause even though I am the manager of the team, I also don't just want to be sitting on the sideline. I still want to contribute and I still want to add to the training experience. That's, that's just my personality. I don't want to sit on the sidelines. Um, second, I look for somebody who also is involved in the profession broadly. So I want to know, are you involved with your local ATD chapter or are, are you helping people find jobs right now? Or do you volunteer? I, I want to work with good humans. So I, I really look to see, you know, besides your work life, how else do you kind of keep up with like what's going on and how do you give back to the world? And that, that's just something that that's really important to me. And third, this is going to sound really hypocritical, but I'm not interested in where you went to school. Um, I don't care if you have a bachelor's degree, a PhD, a graduate certificate. For me, the litmus test is what can you do with it? So I really rely heavily on that portfolio review to see what your skills actually are. <laughs> And you say perhaps hypocritical of you because you are a PhD candidate, correct? Correct. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But again, you, you make a valid point. That is great to have a PhD, but you really do need to have that work experience to back it up. You can't only stand on, on that degree and letters after your name, right? Correct. I do think that some programs maybe emphasize different areas. I think that a lot of graduates that, that I have talked to have a great theoretical lens. However, the technical application piece has been an area of opportunity for a lot mm -hmm. of people I've talked to. So conversely, what are some things that candidates might do in the interview process or things they might say that ruled them out? It was very evident to me that a lot of the candidates had no clue what our company did or even took the time to look up me or or anyone associated with the company so you know I, I find that to be a weakness because why are you interviewing for an organization you know nothing about uh you know one person uh, said something along the lines that they thought that we manufactured chocolate Wow. Um, okay. no, that would be, that'd actually be really cool, but no, sadly we don't manufacture chocolate. I don't know where, where that came from, but <laughs> it gave me, give me a cool giggle. Cause I'm like, Oh, I want to be Willy Wonka. That sounds cool. I find that incredibly shocking because my recommendation to people would be to have a sense of what the company does, how the role you're applying for might fit into that before you're even walking in to a call with a recruiter. And to get to the point where you're talking to the hiring manager and not know about the company that you're about to potentially work at, it, that just kind of boggles my mind. Well, mine too. But then, you know, let me let me flip it here. I do think that there is a lot of desperation right now for a lot of folks. And I know, Joe, you always talk about keeping good records of what you applied for and, you know, what the company does or whatever. It was very evident to me that this candidate 
was very kind of desperate just to get a job. And I think it was just an error and lapse in judgment that they just didn't take the time because it, it was just like, oh, finally, I got an interview. Oh, what did I apply for again? And we'd already taken that job posting down, right? Because we were currently interviewing for it to keep to stop from keep getting, you know, more applicants. So if they wouldn't have saved that job posting, um, or maybe not even remember our, our company, then it would be very hard for them to know what we did. But yeah, chocolate was... <laughs> chocolate was not it <laughs> to try and be helpful to people if, if you do find yourself in the position where you applied to something months ago and you go to check back and the job description isn't there that's probably something that you can ask the recruiter for you can always email that recruiter questions later on and ask them for the job description and then they, they should be happy and to uh, supply that yeah definitely um, one other thing that disqualifies people or gives me a red flag is if I hear the good old learning myths coming up in the interview. So had a candidate that in the first five minutes told me about learning styles and explaining it to me like I had no idea what it was and also gave me their Myers-Briggs. And so I was counting down the minutes to the end of that interview because I knew that was somebody I didn't want to work with. And we've talked about learning myths in a previous episode, and you are definitely not fond of, of things like Myers-Briggs, nor the well-debunked learning styles. And then I guess I'll go with one more. Um, I know like when your stock is kind of the highest, if you're asking for various things. And this is something that I, there's a guy on YouTube that I follow. And I know like when I decided I was leaving my previous institution, I was starting my job search. I mean, I'd been there for seven years. So I was really kind of rusty, I guess, in my whole job search. His name is Andrew La Savita. Um, you can find him on YouTube. We'll link him in the show notes too. But one thing that he teaches is do not negotiate or ask for things until your stock is the highest. And I was really surprised by just what people would ask for before they even knew what we were thinking about things. So, um, you know, some person wanted a astronomical salary, right? Out of the gate. I'm like, I, I, it just, it's just awkward. So, um, you know, know your, know your worth. It's great to ask for things. It's great to make this your opportunity, but just know that it is definitely a mutual fit, right? So if it's something that you're asking for all these various accommodations and, you know, you, you don't know if you see yourself there, then I, you know, maybe that's not the best org for you, but, you know, just rather the gate asking for all these things, it was just like, uh, you know, you, you might be somebody that might be difficult to work with. Yeah. And again, going back to putting yourself in the shoes of the hiring organization and the different people you're talking to, in my experience, the time to make sure that you're within the salary range is during the recruiter call. Um, because if you're not, they want to screen you out early on. They don't want to get further in the interview process. And then you drop a huge figure you know, that shouldn't be a surprise. And then the other time to talk about salary is after you get an offer. And to do so in between, I think just kind of demonstrates a lack of awareness. Yeah, it's it's tough. And I want to get back to the to the interview real quick, because this is something that I think I learned more being 
on the hiring manager side. And again, this is your mileage may vary. So that may be the tagline of this particular podcast episode. But my organization does what's called structured interviews, meaning that we are going to give each candidate the exact same question. So candidate A gets the questions, candidate B gets the questions, candidate C. And then what we'll do is after we go through the interviewing process, we'll be taking notes throughout the interview, of course. Then we convene, the panel reconvenes, and then our recruiter actually is kind of leading this discussion. And then we rate you individually on your overall responses to those. And then we get into discussions about how we rated you and various you know, components. So one pro tip, and this is something that I learned when I was at Amazon and something I still think has a lot of validity is when you answer a question, especially in structured interviews, a lot of them are behavioral based. Um, two tips. One, usually if it's behavioral based, it'll go back to the core values of the company. So at Amazon, all the behavioral questions a lot of times were aligned to the Amazon leadership principles. So you can look those up ahead of time and then look at those and think about maybe some questions that or stories or things that that you can talk about for those. Um, Same with my org. So it is aligned back to our core values as a company. So really think about that on the front end. And then two, when you're answering a question from an interviewer, use the STAR method. And so STAR is situation slash task action and result. So if you can give your response in, you know, here was what the situation is, or here's what the task I was given. Here's my action. Here's what I did. And here was the result. It's easier for the interviewer to write that down simply. And it's easier for them to follow what you're you're saying instead of somebody meandering in a story that they did 25 years ago that I'm not kidding you that our interview is 45 minutes. One question took up almost 25 minutes of them telling us every minute detail of that story. And it was very painful. Yeah. I personally, I understand the benefits of asking behavioral based interview questions like that. I find them extremely difficult to answer. And in my experience, they're very specific in, in what they ask. And I often find it difficult to find a situation in my past that matches that adequately. It almost puts me in a position where I need to either exaggerate or just come up and be like, oh, yeah, and I, oh, it totally worked out well and and this and that. And I just hate being in that position to where I either have to be like, I don't really have a good example, but I would do this, which I think is the good way to pivot if you can't think of a good example. Um, is to say, I no, I, I can't really, but here's a similar, something kind of similar, or here's what I would do. I think that's a good way to pivot better than lying. But it, I just hate being in that position where they want something very specific and I don't have an example. No, I think that's absolutely a fair statement. And so that's another thing that I will say is just know that I'm nervous too on the other end because I want you to have a good representation of the organization, right? So I am way more forgiving the first couple of times um, in the interview, the first couple of questions, 
Um, cause I realize you're nervous and, you know, even if you start kind of going down a rabbit hole, I have stopped people and said, can you rephrase that for me? Or can you uh, talk a little bit more about that kind of throwing you a bone? So that way you are getting a little bit more comfortable because absolutely, Joe, you're right. These questions are not easy to answer, but as far as again, comparing across, um, that is the way that a lot of organizations have to do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I totally get why they do. And just one final piece of advice for people would be Google common behavioral based interview questions and just come up with some pre prepared stories essentially from your past that you can pull up and you're ready to kind of go over in the star format. I went into one company that's notorious for having a long and brutal interview process that is almost entirely behavioral based. And I had probably 20 different stories written out aligned to different areas of what that company saw as their governing principles. And I still really struggled with probably at least 50% of the questions they asked me. It was a really brutal process. And it's almost like you're filtering candidates in a way, biasing yourself to hire a bunch of BSers. Interesting. You you went there, didn't you? Yeah. No. I I can see that. I can I can definitely see that. Um, because I do think that if you're a good interviewer, so to speak, you you can get jobs maybe over people that may have better technical acumen than you. So I. I can see that. Um, Speaking of technical acumen, let's talk a little bit about portfolios, Joe. So I know you talked about portfolios in your episode on here talking about job seekers. So from a hiring perspective, what I'm looking for in a portfolio is I want to see a little bit of an alignment on your resume, the job description in your portfolio. Meaning, for example, if the job description says experience in articulate storyline, and you say on your resume, I'm experienced in articulate storyline, then I think on your portfolio, I should see what? Examples of articulate storyline. So um, great, great example here. I had a portfolio that I got from a candidate and they had on their resume that they had extensive storyline experience. I did not see one piece of storyline anywhere on their portfolio at all. And what they did have on there was templates of different things that I've seen. So uh, that that was a no-go. They didn't make it any further because I had no evidence of their storyline experience. And Joe, I know that you've went through several interviews where you've had to do a work product. Myself, I try not to do that to people in the interview. And here's why. I am very sensitive to the fact that these products that we use in our profession are expensive. I also realize if somebody is out seeking for a job, um, you're not always employed. Sometimes you are looking for a better opportunity, but a lot of people aren't. And so I didn't want to take, have anybody take on the burden of spending money on a tool or you know signing up kind of violating terms and condition on their fourth or fifth trial of a product, right? So I I wanted to to keep it uh, more even playing field. And for me, the easiest way to do that was with a portfolio because I did want to be sensitive to what people may or may not have access to in this time. Yes. And I could go off on an entire tangent about making interview candidates do assignments that uh, could be used as actual work products. I think that's on the company's part morally wrong 
full stop and it shouldn't be done. I think it should basically be illegal to ask somebody to do work for free in that regard. Um, and it puts job seekers in a tough position. Uh, and my only advice there would be you have to decide at that point if you're willing to continue with the job process or if you want to walk away. Um, I do also want to talk a little bit about just kind of the requirements of a job. So on the job description that we had posted, it said very plainly, a portfolio is required to apply for this job. We had a candidate that had a great resume, um, had a great screen. And then before the live interview with me, they were to send their portfolio over. At that time, they said, oh, I, I don't have a portfolio well, then why did you apply? And is, is my answer to that. It says very bluntly, I need, you need to have access to a portfolio. So I think it's very risky. If you see something on there that states you need a portfolio to apply anyway, you do sometimes have lead time, of course, when you're, you're applying for jobs, but for that candidate to very bluntly say, no, I don't have one. That was a easy disqualification. And again, not to continually criticize these poor job candidates, but Applying for a job and hiring people is, it's a lot like buying a house or making any kind of huge investment, but uh, buying a house is a good analogy in particular, because when you're buying a house, you have like these small opportunities where you get to look at the house and inspect the house. And you only get a few times to do that before you have to decide if you're going to just throw down a bunch of money and buy this house or not. And it's the same thing with applying for a job and hiring people. As a job seeker, you only get a few glimpses to see, okay, is this an organization I want to work for? Is this a, a manager I want to work for? Is this a role that I want to do? And from the organization's standpoint, they only get a few glimpses of what you would be like as an employee. So not being able to follow the basic directions in the job description is a huge indication of what kind of employee that's going to be. Right. And to the point that you made about, you know, them looking also at the organization, uh, another tip that I'll give job seekers is, and again, your mileage may vary, is at the end of the day, it was my decision on who I selected. So even if the panel that I had assembled really liked one candidate, they realized that at our organization, I am the learning and development expert. And so they defer to my choice on who I wanted to hire. So even though it's really important to be polite and respectful to the panel, you really need to focus on dazzling that hiring manager. And to me, there's no reason why you should go into the interview without knowing that name of that hiring manager beforehand. I even told our recruiter, give people my name let them know who the hiring manager is, because I think it's really important, again, for you to do your own due diligence, as Joe said, to see if, if I'm somebody that you would want to work with. You can look me up online and get a pretty good indication of who I am and make the determination if you want to continue. And I think I even put it in, in jest, maybe, maybe not in jest, on the post when I shared the job that this job does report to me and I realized that could be a deal breaker for some people. So do your own homework as well. Definitely agree with that. I don't think there's any reason why people shouldn't at least be searching for folks on LinkedIn just to see who they're dealing with. If for no other reason, I, I like to do it just to see the person's face if I could before I went into the interview. But also, I want to see what their background is, especially the hiring manager. I want to see where they're coming from. And 
how long they've been at the company is, is a great piece of information you get from from looking up their profile. On the flip side, the the job that I ultimately accepted, they did a lot of looking into what I was doing to a huge degree is going as far as to listening to the podcast that we have here and reading my tweets. I was asked in the interview process about some tweets I had given months back about speaking openly about what I thought about kind of the state of, of e-learning and things like that and then learning experience design. So have to have those words, my own words kind of thrown at me and to be asked about them shows one, that they really wanted to be invested in the person that they were hiring and know who they were hiring, which was awesome. And two, that you should be kind of be careful in monitoring your own activity and making sure that you're staying professional on all these social networks that you engage in. Yeah, I agree. And I'm definitely the hiring manager that is looking you up online. Well, excellent, Kara. Thank you so much for just giving your perspective that you now have as a hiring manager. It's definitely good to get that that perspective that you had. And hopefully we've given some good tips to people today for interviewing and what things look like on the other side of the table. And hopefully we weren't too negative and, and too critical of applicants, but I really think it behooves people to kind of learn from others' mistakes and to make sure that, that they don't repeat those. Yeah, absolutely. And remember that you wouldn't have made it to the interview if you weren't qualified. So be kind to yourself in this whole journey. I know that there's a lot of people that are still struggling and looking. So give yourself a pat on the back for even making it this far. And even if it doesn't work out for this particular organization, it should be a feather in your hat. And it should give you motivation to continue forward knowing that, you know, you did have the right skill set and background to make it to a job interview. So celebrate the small victories. If you get far in the interview process and ultimately it doesn't work out, I know how demoralizing that can be, but just kind of pick yourself up and keep going no matter how many times it happens. You might listen to the advice we're giving today and in the past episode and think, well, that's that's fine and well for Joe and Kara, but you'd be, you might be surprised by how many times I got to like the final round and ultimately they went with somebody else. Um, so just hang in there. I know it's tough, but eventually something will come along that's right for you. Yeah, same. I actually thought before COVID hit, I was going to move to the state of Utah for a job. Like I, I was that close to getting another role. And then when it didn't work out, I was devastated. Um, and I let that eat me away for a couple of days. So go get you some ice cream and, you know, feel free to be in your feelings for a while. But again, just know that, Somebody out there wants you, wants your talents, and you can really contribute something great to this profession. So just hang in there. Yeah, I like to say, you know, give yourself an hour, an afternoon, not more than a, a one day to just kind of sulk around if you need that. But right after that, you got to pick things back up and hit things hard again. Joe, I need more than a day to finish the ice cream. I mean, come on. Well, I don't know how much <laughs> ice cream you're buying, but geez. Um, no, no, um, not going there. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks everybody for listening to this episode. Um, we're so happy to be recording again and releasing episodes and we hope you found it useful. Um, so signing off, this is Joe Suarez. And I'm Kara Noor. Thank you so much for listening. Here at the Instructional Redesign Podcast, we have a team of the world's best data scientists constantly analyzing our listenership data. And after months of painstaking analysis and computations, they have determined that our listeners 
could use some help in the fashion department. Now I know what you're thinking, but Joe, I think I have a fine fashion sense. To which I say, denial is a perfectly natural human response. You see, I was there myself once, lacking a certain learning and development vibe to my wardrobe. But my fortune changed when I discovered all the swag available at lndtees.com. There I found a fine selection of fun and snarky L&D-themed items like t-shirts that took my look from dull to daring, and coffee mugs that start my mornings off with a smile. Now I'm the envy of every Zoom call I attend. That's what's in store for anyone bold enough to venture to lndtees.com. That's the letters L-N-D-T-E-E-S.com. No ampersand because the internet is allergic to special characters. And if you go to lndtees.com IRD, you'll find instructional redesign podcast swag. Take a look and consider helping to support and promote the show with a purchase. Both links will be available in the show notes for this episode, or you can take matters into your own hands and type lndtees.com or lndtees.com slash IRD into your web browser of choice.